I'm going to cover six papers and a book, I'll come back to each of them in a moment, uh, that have been either published or accepted for publication, and then I'll end up with two pieces of work that are current. So the, the talk is organized in four different uh, chapters. First, I'll give you some background as to why we're doing scenario research in Oxford, uh, some definitions so that uh, you're clear on what we're talking about and not. Then I'll go over the seven pieces of research and then I'll close with uh, an overview of two current research projects. So I'll start with the background. I came to Oxford um, about 11 years ago and it was good timing in terms of what's been happening to the scenario literature. The green uh, arrow of travel was the number of publications. This is just in English, peer-reviewed publications. Uh, published. I have these figures thanks to our excellent librarians who are sitting here in the front. So Chris updates this for me quite regularly. And then 9-11 um, happened and the interest in scenarios went up significantly. And now there's about 2,400 articles, peer-reviewed articles on scenario planning published every year. I don't read 2,400 articles a year, so I don't really know what I'm talking about anymore. Um, there is about 1,600 books in Amazon with scenario planning. Uh, there's about uh, 47,000 hits in Google and so on and so forth. So this, this is a very lively field these days and there's lots being written on it. Um, this is a piece of research out in HBR in 2007 which again shows that there was a significant jump in the percentage of companies that bane surveys in terms of management tools uh, scenario planning went up from about 40% uh, companies answering to about 60% companies answering, so saying they were doing this. Okay, so how did I get to Oxford and what was I doing? Between uh, 2000 and 2003, I was employed as a visiting professor of scenario planning at Shell where I was involved in producing the 2001 scenarios which were released about three months before 9-11 happened and uh, learned a lot about the way Shell was doing things. When I came here we created something called the Oxford Futures Forum which you can find on the website of the school which is a community of uh, scenario planners and scenario scholars that meets every three years here and we confront what we know about scenario planning with what theories we think could inform scenarios. So the previous four, three sessions were scenarios and social ecology, I'll come back to that. There were scenarios on um, and uh, uh, sense making, uh, which gave a number of publications. Then there were scenarios and complexity with Felix. And then this year we're doing scenarios and design. And 70 people from around the world come together and they confront each other in terms of what we learn from that. And that has been a rich source of learning about scenarios. Uh, another thing that was created, and there's a number of people around in the room that have been involved in this, is a uh, scenarios program, which is a peer-reviewed executive education program. So we typically have uh, somebody from the university and somebody from outside the university being peer reviewers of this program. Uh, and that has improved quite a lot our understanding of not only how scenarios work, but how, how to teach them. 
And uh, some of the graduates of that program have done uh, quite interesting things. Trudy Lang, who did a doctorate here, has just published scenarios on the future of Mongolia. And uh, Nick Davis, who was doing an EMBA here and whom I sort of advised, has ended up doing scenarios on the future of the financial uh, system and metals and mining. And this has been a sort of important uh, link between uh, the school and the World Economic Forum. And there's all kinds of possibilities for doing research with them on the way that they have done scenarios and the way that these are used by different parties. Um, our students do interesting things, not only interesting in the world, but they also do interesting things from a point of view of research. So on the top left here is um, a man that did scenarios on the future of Houston, Texas. The top right is, the, is the, uh, a group of people from Canada's newest university, Kwantlen Polytechnic University, came here, learned scenarios and did it for themselves. On the bottom right, we have a, a link in the school with the DP World, the third biggest port management company in the world, and they used us to develop the scenarios, and those scenarios are now being used in the MBA program and in Mary Sacco's um, diploma program. And on the left here, we have a, a link with the Global Business Policy Council of AT Kearney, who bring us 12 senior partners and their customers, their clients, and then we work together with them on challenges that they have. And then out, out of these things, all kinds of programs arise. Angela, who's sitting over there, brought me a very interesting um, company, world-known world company, uh, the African and Middle East management team. And we asked them, what's the most important plus side you could have with your business that you're not able to realize? And they said, Iran. So we then ran scenarios on the future of Iran. And you can always find people in Oxford that will tell you interesting things about the future of something. So this is the background. Um, there's a lot of histories of scenario planning. This is just one uh, summary. Uh, in the US, there's a number of, of schools. Napier, who's sitting here, has been involved with some of them. Uh, the SRI, RAND, Hudson Institute, Institute for the Future, et cetera, et cetera. In France, there was a guy called Berger back in the 1920s that worked on things. Uh, Massé, Desjouvenel, Stofaes, and others uh, have uh, done uh, work with that. Uh, Assad Saab is, a, is an old friend. And these two organizations uh, of scenarios, the US approach and the France, French approach, came together in Shell in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, particularly with this man, Pierre Vac whose papers are now in the business school. So we have one of the best libraries in the world on the future, well, on the past of the future. Uh, and uh, we have some researchers coming to do some research work, and it would be nicer to have more than that. And there's a lot of work now happening in Southeast Asia with a, a guy called Inyatulia and Dator and Bezel, who are really in, in Hawaii, but I guess that's part of uh, Southeast Asia Pacific. So there's a number of traditions here, and we, we build on this one, but we're not captured uh, by that one. The Pierre Vac Library is now at eGrove, and thanks to the great work of Chris and Chris here, these are the two librarians of the business school, and Napier, who uh, arranged for the collection to be given to uh, Templeton College as it was then. We have a library there that can be used for uh, theses, research, and so on and so forth. So there's a 
uh, apart from executive education programs and the Oxford Futures Forum and a lot of re really interesting students with really interesting activities, we now have a research facility in the school on scenarios. So some definitions to be clear on what I'm talking about here. If you go to the Oxford English Dictionary, not the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, the Oxford English Dictionary, and you look at the word the future, it is not something you go into. It's something that comes at you. So the future is in already in this room. If the wall behind uh, Thomas over there was the past, and the wall behind Richard over there was the future, and we're in the present, we expect the future to come towards us. In Spanish, my mother tongue, it's porvenir, to come, future to come. In French, it's avenir. I understand that in Dutch, there's also a word for to come, right? So the future is something in the present that we expect to come at us and to be different from that. And what we look with in, the, in scenario work is what does the perspective, if looking at this room not from the eyes of the present, if I could take my eyeglasses and locate them in the future and look at the present from the point of view of the future, what does it tell me about the future, about the present that I cannot ascertain by being constrained by the past and the present as I am now. So we look at the future as a conceptual space from which to look upon the present. Um, and so for us scenarios are not predictions and they're not projections and they're not preferences and they're not about probabilities and they're not about me and they're not about being true. Instead for us in Oxford and the way we teach it and research it, scenarios are about identifying the assumptions we are making today about ourselves and particularly our context. They're fictional, they're not real, they're up in the future. They are made for a purpose and they're made to be useful and we work with a very tricky concept called plausibility, which I'll come back to. So as opposed to probability, which a lot of people work with, we work with plausibility. The scenarios are, are about the context. So if I was working for Peter Tufano here as a scenario planner, I would not be looking at the future of the business school. I would be looking at the future context in which the business school is located. And I would make, it, make sure that it's a useful uh, exercise and that once it has served its use, it can be disposed of. So in the top of this picture, you have the future forecasting, where you go from the past through the present into the future. Whereas in scenario planning, we consider that there's more than one future, two or three futures, and we bring those futures to the present. And we want to have disagreement between the different futures. So if um, Chris over here thinks that the future is red, and Tomo thinks that the future is blue, and I'm managing them in a team here in the present, I want Tomo and Chris to disagree with each other. I want disagreement to be an asset, not a liability. Because it's in the tensions between the green view and the red view, and whatever black view I may have today of the future, that I can then look at what assumptions I'm making and how to question them and how to make my plans and uh, options more robust. So we make a distinction between me and the transactional environment. Me is this I here. 
and the transactional environment is anybody that I can shake hands with in the red. My customers, my suppliers, my investors, my regulators, my competitors. I'm not supposed to shake hands with my competitors, but it's so nice to run into you into this Hilton Hotel. Anyway, so the transactional environment is this set of actors with whom I interact. And my strategy is between me and my suppliers, supply chain management, me and my customers, marketing, customer relationships, um, uh, customer service, me and my competitors through strategy and so on and so forth. So the bulk of an MBA curriculum is between the yellow and the dark blue. Scenarios are about the light blue to the dark blue. Scenarios are about factors, those blue elements out there that I cannot shake hands with, like the yen to dollar exchange rate or the values of uh, Brazilians in relation to the Amazon ecology or the um, uh, geopolitics of the Middle East. I cannot shake hands with these factors. And what we look at is how the contextual environment might impact the transactional environment. So for example, this is work I was involved in some years ago on the future of patenting with the European Patent Office. You can download this uh, report from the web. The European Patent Office was at the time the biggest patenting organization in the world and they were interested in what is the future of us, uh, the European Patent Office, as patent granting organizations. Keith Ruddle, who's sitting over here, was also involved in this work. Well, that depended on the future of Europe because the European Patent Office is a treaty organization that has 27 uh, countries uh, tied into it, different from the EU. And that depended on what intellectual property would be in society as a whole. So the strategy is red to orange. The scenarios is yellow to orange. Scenarios are what kind of intellectual property legitimacy might there be in the future or stop being in the future? And how does that then change intellectual property in Europe, which then changes the playing field in which the European Patent Office plays? So what we do with scenarios, uh, and this is from a very good book by our colleague Case van der Heiden, who's an associate fellow here in the school, is we look at possible alternative futures to the one in which the current strategy is premised. So the current strategy would be me in relation to clients, suppliers, investors, owners, employees, all of the people with whom I shake hands and do business with. And that assumes that when the strategy is implemented, this playing field, this immediate transactional environment would be there. And what we do is we look at things like energy prices, legislation, macroeconomics, geopolitical trends, and so on and so forth, and say, well, let's manufacture two or three alternative futures that might come into being during the time in which I'm implementing my strategy and see if that strategy is robust if the world becomes green or red or light blue as opposed to it's becoming dark blue. That's what we do with scenario planning. And part of my job with my colleagues here is to figure out when is this done well and when is this done badly? And what's the difference between good and bad? And how can we improve the quality of uh, these scenarios so that they're better and less bad? And how do we do that in a rigorous 
scientific, scholarly way. This is something that is now entering the world as a whole. This is in the cover of Newsweek about how Obama had invested zillions of US dollars in scenarios on the future of Muslim fundamentalism, on the future of the Middle East, but they had never once imagined that their pal, Mr. Mubarak, might be overthrown through pop popular revolt. So part of the question is, how do you make sure that the scenarios you're going to invest in are actually going to be usable uh, if and when uh, the difficult to imagine but imaginable happens? So I'm moving now into the published research uh, that we have. Uh, all of these papers, thanks to Chris and Chris here, you can download from the Eureka uh, uh, repository on the internet. So all of these papers, if you're interested, you can, you can get at. And I'm going to organize a talk here based on five different sort of focuses that the research since I came to Oxford is about. Scenarios and mindfulness, how do you attend to things? There's people that believe that the single um, rarest and most valuable asset of a top management team is what they dedicate attention to, and how do you manage that? Uh, then there's scenarios and innovation and strategy, scenarios and social capital, <coughs> scenarios and methods about scenarios, and then risk, probability, and forecasting. And for each of these, there's uh, a paper that I will cover very quickly. And then there's a book, uh, Business Planning for Turbulent Times, which was the result of the first Oxford Futures Forum. And it's now on its second edition. And as far as I know, it's the only book in the business school with which the preface is by a minister of government. We asked Vince Cable to write the preface when he was the most uh, popular politician on the land. And then he wrote the preface, and then he stopped being the most popular politician on the land, but for reasons different than writing uh, the preface here. So let me talk about the book. Um, about 20 years ago, I published a paper in the Harvard Business Review by, with my late colleague Richard Norman, and then a book uh, in... Uh, with Wiley, which attacked the idea of the value chain, saying that the value chain was actually a very unhelpful way of thinking about value in the future. This is a whole line of research that is still alive. I'm still working on it with my colleagues. Um, and uh, I won't touch on this part of work here, but in designing interactive strategy, we discovered that every business and every business model assumes something about the context. So you design a business school or a university, or in this case, IKEA, or whatever it is that you design, and the design is good if the context for which it has been designed is available to you. Then something like this happens. In this country, it's now illegal to sell um, 100-watt um, incandescent light bulbs. Brilliant business design, developed from Edison by GE and Philips and all of these other companies. And suddenly, what was a good design is illegal. And the reason for that is there was an assumption built in that there was no such thing as climate change going to happen, and that there was not going to be politicians entering the world looking at how climate change uh, would um, get out of the, uh, uh, get into the political sphere, and that uh, would then make an old business design that was good 
bad. And so we look at changes that could change the assumptions upon which a business design works on. On the left, you have things like the change in life expectancy uh, in the UK, which of course affects your pension and the value of your pension. On the right, we have more sudden changes like the Fukushima uh, disaster in Japan and the effect that that can have on, for example, uh, German uh, energy prices. We look at these things. In the Oxford Futures Forum, we contrasted what we know from social ecology and turbulent environments with um, the assumptions of the context. And in this book, we basically look at what happens when the complexity and interactions in the contextual environment overwhelm the transactional environment and Im impact on it. So it's not only, not only that your strategy is no longer good, it's that this, the world in which your strategy was working is no longer available to you. And we suggested that because this is happening more and more these days, and there's examples such as the US Committee on uh, the Financial Crisis, where four of the authors disagreed with the others as to what the financial crisis happened. The complexity is such that the ground itself is moving. And when the ground itself is moving, you can no longer forecast, and you need something else, and scenarios uh, come in as a result. This is a question that is not trivial. The Financial Times look at, looks at this in terms of survival for organizations. And the book looked at, uh, we think, the first theoretical explanation as to why scenarios use has gone up. Uh, looked at turbulence, looked at how to make scenarios more effective in turbulence, and looked at particularly how to create new business and new value rather than just de-risk the existing business out of that. And as we speak, we are re revising a version of this argument for a peer-reviewed publication for the third time and hopefully the last time in the sense that it's accepted, not that we give up or they give up. So let me now go back to these um, papers and go through the six of them and then two uh, current ones and then we can open up it up for discussion. This paper on how Shell domains linked innovation and strategy was written with Leo Rudhart, who's an associate fellow of the school. He was head of innovation for Shell when I worked with him. He then became uh, president of the Society of Petroleum Engineers and Willem Manners was in the learning part of Shell. And basically, what the, uh, the argument is very simple. You are a firm today, and you have a view of your future, and in your future, you want to perhaps say, we're going to be a firm that uh, captures a larger uh, percentage of new energy markets, whatever new energy markets is in terms of geography or technologies or whatever it is. Now, whenever you have a strategy, you have de facto made a scenario, which is assumptions on the future context in which that strategy is going to live, right? So what happens if an alternative future, in this case a green future or a red future, comes to be? Well, then the original path is no longer a great path to go towards. And so alternative endpoints uh, come to be developed. If the red future happens, maybe we should go into new energy systems. And in the green future happens, maybe we should be the most sustainable company. And so we look at alternative possible end states. And there are three here. 
And then it's very confusing if you're the strategist, which one do you aim for? Now the advantage in the oil world is that this is 20, 30, 50 years ahead, and your strategy might be 5, 10, 15 years ahead. And so you have some time to think uh, between the long term in decades and the short term in years. But it's an empty quarter and it's very fraught with fights. There's people that think about this in terms of HR policies. There are people that think of, of this in terms of risk. There's of course the strategists, there's the technologists. And the question is how do you get them to talk to each other? So what Leo developed with my help in Shell was a series of domains which are like stepping stones. So if you want the north, the, the, the further top um, output in the end of your scenario period, you have to invest in the top yellow steps. And if you want to end up with access to customers rather than to reserves, then you have to become really good at these kinds of things. And what we found was that this actually focused attention. So this was the graph that finally got the paper published where you can see that after domains were introduced in 2002, the percentage of um, new ideas for R&D that was accepted dropped from 60% of those, almost 60%, 58% of those uh, submitted to only 30%. Whereas the num number of ideas that graduated into businesses or spin-offs remained the same. So basically, this focuses attention. You kill things that are not going to work earlier, and you focus attention and resources on the ones that are going to make it uh, more. Scenarios and early warnings in re relation to um, dynamic capabilities. This work was done with Riku Osterman and Daniel Gronquist. Riku Osterman was at the time when we were doing it, head of competitive intelligence for Nokia, a company that we no longer talk about as much as we did when we started the research. And the other guy was a consultant in uh, um, Statoil, working with uh, Suela, who's uh, in the back here of, of, the, of the room. So two case studies, how Nokia and Statoil use scenarios to focus attention for top management. And basically, the, uh, the, the literature says top management teams order scenarios every few years. They like it, and then it goes away. The competitive intelligence and early warning systems people tend to be very frustrated because they're not listened to by top management. They're keeping on saying, there's a new thing happening, and then the top management does not listen to them. And what we found was that if you linked these things together, where the scenarios are ordered to reorient management attention, the key is how early will the management know which of these scenarios is going to happen. And by looking at this, we found out that the scenarios, every time that Nokia or Statoil did scenarios, the categories of what competitive intelligence and early warning system looked out for changed. So this was refocused and reframed. And by doing this, you could refresh the scenarios, which made the scenarios last longer. And the scenarios, therefore, were uh, a better investment. Um, this had not been done before, and so we suggested that instead of thinking of scenarios as products, you could think of scenarios as processes or as software releases that were updated every uh, now and then. And the capabilities to do scenarios and the capabilities to do uh, early warning systems, when combined, 
made these things have competitive advantage. Of course, having chosen Nokia as one of our case studies, we then had to explain why Nokia went bankrupt. And I'd be happy to take that as a question later, because they were very good at scenarios and they were very good at competitive intelligence, but they still uh, did not do well. Feral Futures was written with a colleague here, uh, um, Jerry uh, Ravetz, and this uh, became quite a, a, a noisy uh, uh, paper in the insurance and risk business. Uh, the article was called Very Strange Things, Feral Futures, Zen and Aesthetics, and I'll come back to why. Uh, we distinguish between three types of futures. The first one is tame futures, which we know very well, which is the kind of future where we're sitting in the present, we're looking at the future, and we think we can forecast our way through it. So crossing a street in New York, uh, you know how fast cars go across, you know how fast you can dash across the street, and if you make it to the other side of the street, you've tamed the future because yesterday's experience behind the wall where Thomas is sitting of my database with my uh, speeds of uh, cars in New York and my speeds of dashing across the streets, I can take that, look at the distribution of data, and then forecast my way across that. So that's tame futures. Then we looked at wild futures. Wild futures is where you can no longer rely on the possibility of a tame future because you're no longer sure that tomorrow is going to be like yesterday later. And this is where imagination and all kinds of new words arise and where scenarios have a, a good home, where things like hippies or civil rights movements or all kinds of new entities uh, come around. And if you start imagining those in the, in, the, in the present, you're in fact engaging in scenario planning. Or more recently, in business terms, uh, you have these kinds of companies. We imagine different things with different words uh, and different connotations. Now, the feral future situation is what happens if you mistake a wild uh, situation in which you should be doing scenario work for a tame situation and you attack it with tame uh, technologies. And so you have, for example, in, this, in the article, the creation of the Taliban by the Americans, which is actually the creation also of Al-Qaeda by the Americans, who had armed the Muhaddin in, uh, in, in um, Afghanistan to fight the Russians. We have the famous article and book by Charles Perrow on Three Mile Island, where they had a wild situation and attacked it with tame technologies and made it worse. We have the financial crisis. So what happens if you have these kinds of futures? Well, you just have to give up. You can no longer pretend that you can argue it. And so the idea of Zen and an aesthetic uh, stance towards it uh, uh, gets created. Plausibility and probability. This is an article that has just been uh, accepted for publication. It's not available uh, yet uh, in the journal Foresight with Cynthia Sellin, who's at Arizona State, who's also a um, uh, associate fellow of the business school here. And it's a response to a quite significant article by a very good scenario planner called Stephen Millett uh, out of a, a US uh, consultancy who suggested that we should look at, pro we should use probabilities with scenarios. And we came to the conclusion that he was wrong and we wrote about it. Basically, this, the people that advocate probability say that that's what we do anyway and that plausibility is unreliable. 
And you can see here this quote at the bottom, there's always an easy solution to every problem that's neat, plausible, and wrong. And then there's people that believe that the future is a cone of plausibility. And uh, Cynthia and I, when we're looking at this, this is out of the second Oxford Futures Forum on sense making, we said, how do we know that plausibility has a cone? So we came up with a, uh, an alternative, which I'll come to in a moment. Plausibility has been given a very bad name by Ronald Reagan in the Iran-Contra affair, where they developed something called plausible deniability, which the rest of us would call lying. And plausible is about applause as well, so it's manipulative. And so one of the questions is, why are you going to use something so difficult as plausibility instead of probability, which is proven to be statistically significant? So we came up with an alternative, which is instead of having the cone of plausibility, we should have the teddy bear of plausibility. This was tough to get through into the uh, reviewers. We insisted and we won. You know? So plausibility maybe comes in the form of teddy bears and not cones. And there's a wonderful piece in the FT by John Kay looking at how decisions are made in terms of the balance of probabilities in law as we are in this room, Rebecca Brooks is trying to prove that she plausibly did not know anything at all about uh, the problems of uh, uh, hacking in the newspaper she was uh, head of. And the law will decide in terms of plausibility whether she has a plausible story or not. <laughs> the really important decisions in most cultures today are not taken in terms of probability. If David decides to get married here, in most cultures, you do not do a net present value discounted cash flow assessment of how much your future spouse is worth. You look at, would this person plausibly be a good partner for me? Would I plausibly be a good partner for her or him? Could we plausibly be good parents? And then we decide on that. Why should we not decide in plausibility terms in strategy? as we do in law or for the important decisions of our life. And so we came up with this quite neat diagram at the end of the, of the um, uh, article where it's not only a question of probability versus plausibility, but also whether scenarios are an art or a scientific, and whether we're going to use qualitative or more qualitative or more quantitative thinking in the work. So that's the analysis that there's eight different flavors of scenario planning available through that framework. How many of them are we going to use? This piece here is the one article for those of you colleagues that are teaching scenario planning in strategy that I recommend you read. Just because it shows you how deceptively simple scenario planning is about. So this was done by uh, our colleague Angela Wilkinson, again an associate fellow of the school. She was at the Smith School at the time. She's now head of foresight in the OECD when we started working on this. And basically this came out of a classroom debate where our poor TAs, there's some sitting here like uh, uh, Andy and Yasser and, and perhaps others here, were TAing for us in the scenarios program and a group would come up with a question, Angela would come in and answer it in another way, the same question would remain, I would come in and I would answer it in another way, incompatible with hers. Bad for us? Well, possibly, but we've discovered that actually the disagreement between us was a disagreement in the literature. 
And this has to do with one of the big conundrums of scenario planning. The scenario planner is the individual on the right. The scenario user is the individual on the left. The individual on the left has their eyes in front. They work with two by two media like PowerPoint slides, paper, Excel sheets, and so on and so forth. Uh, and they have to compress everything into two by two media to be able to share it across a company. Whereas the one on the right uh, doesn't have their eyes on the front. Thank God does not need to use Excel. Um, uh, the eyes are on the side, so it has peripheral vision. It has these big ears. It can listen to weak signals with. It doesn't work in offices, and as one of our students said, it gets shot at. So it's a scenario <laughs> planner. Right? So the, the part of the method challenge is how do you bring the richness of information that this individual here can capture so it's usable over here? And we do it often in a two-by-two two matrix. And what Angela and I discovered was that depending on whether you do the, the matrix on a black and white uh, version on the left or a darker and lighter version on the right, it makes the whole use of scenario planning quite different. And so there's a table at the end, which I won't read into you, but you can look it up in the, in the paper, contrasting the advantages and disadvantages of doing it in either or frames or both and grids. Canaries in the Mind was another piece with Angela. This is the oldest one in the whole uh, collection here. It was based on a piece of work that she led when it was the James Martin Institute here at the school. It's now in, called the Institute for uh, Science, Innovation and Society, and it's now in anthropology. And we looked at what was happening with the financial crisis and what would we look at the financial crisis as in the future. And we came up with a contrast of is the financial crisis really a, a financial depression or is it the beginning of the end of the planet in ecological terms? And depending on how you framed the challenge, then you would start responding to it in a rather different way. And perhaps Occupy New York and the in indignados are much more on this side of the equation, whereas Mr. Paulson and other regulators and the G20 were on the left side of the picture. What we discovered was that in the financial services field, scenarios were counterfactuals in the model, whereas we thought of scenarios as assumptions of the model. And we came to the conclusion that scenarios were much more helpful if they were about the assumptions of the model than counterfactuals inside of the model. And that it is uh, an important aspect in scenario planning to figure out which of these frames matters? So we, we related to a, a quote in The Economist that said that it's much better, it said that if, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And the question is, which table do you have to put together to have a conversation and how do you frame the issue to bring the right speakers to the table? Now, let me finish with current research. I'm almost on time here, and then we can open it up. There's a whole bunch of things that I'm working on which are in light green, and I'm just going to stop on two. The first one is work with Trudy Lang, who graduated from here last year with a doctorate, is now working in the World Economic Forum, and her research was based on comparing two rounds of research in the open university on the, o on the future of the university, a topic that matters to a lot of us here, and the work that was done in the European Patent Office. And with the help of our colleague of Felix, she mapped the people that were involved in each round. 
and came to the conclusion that in scenario planning you actually build new relationships that are not available to you if you don't do that. And so the Open University uh, Office of the Vice Chancellor managed to reach out to um, the um, faculty in a much better way the second time round that they wanted to engage with them rather than in the first time. And looking at the literature on social capital, she uh, found in her dissertation that you can create new cognitive social capital, new common language, new perspectives to create an alternative conversation. And the Euro European Patent Office scenarios are, were much more effective in working with the outside than with the inside. Finally, a paper here, this is work with colleagues across the university with the, there's two, at least two people here from the Environmental Change Institute. There's uh, a group within uh, the business school led by Richard, who's at the back here, on the future of retailing management. And this is the uh, migration uh, group. And these people have come to me over the years. We have had discussions. And what we do in this paper, which is going to be submitted again for the third time and hopefully the last one on Friday for revision, is three cases. One is the future of retailing in India. Richard will correct me if I'm misrepresenting things here, but Malobi uh, Carr, as it was in, the, in those days, she's now married and has a newly unpronounceable name to me, but it's still Malobi. She was looking at how will retailing happen in India in the future. And the trouble is that all of the literature is from Western retailing development and the way India's retailing futures seem to be unfolding don't match the Western literature. So that's one piece of research. A second piece of research is the future of migration, and particularly migration across the Mediterranean. This is work with a woman called Simona Vezzoli, Italian, who is finishing her doctorate in the, uh, in the migration studies department, uh, where they are using scenarios to figure out what kind of future migration challenges will be uh, uh, available in the Mediterranean. And by the way, this is not just north of the Mediterranean. I found out in working with her that Egypt and Libya became net immigrant countries rather than net emigrant countries just because Chad and Niger and Somalia and Sudan are such awful places that Egypt looks like Switzerland in comparison. And the last one, uh, this, the fieldwork here must have been really tough was Arnoldo Matus Kramer, who was doing his doctorate uh, under the then head of the Environmental Change Institute in Oxford on the future of uh, Eastern Yucatan and Quintana Roo um, tourism policy as to whether it would be sustainable on the left or more like uh, Miami on, on the right. And our findings here are quite interesting. This is, as far as we know, the first time that scenarios are used as a rigorous method of research uh, with one exception uh, which involves very rich companies and very good people there. First of all, we find across these three cases that scenarios is a scholarly rigorous mode of inquiry. Second, and this is particularly relevant, it produces very interesting research. There's a wonderful set of papers by Alveson and Sandberg, and Sandberg and Alveson on what is interesting research. And basically they say, interesting research come up, comes up with new problems rather than f finding gaps in the existing literature. And in these three cases, uh, interesting research has been found. Third, 
it's research that is relevant to users as well as rigorous and usable by scholars. And last, it's expensive and difficult to master. So that's the presentation, and we're open for questions for 40 minutes. Thank you for your attention.